And hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Business Beat, brought to you by Frazier and Dieter. Speaking of Frazier and Dieter, I'm alongside my old pal, Roger Lesby. Good morning, John. Happy Valentine's Day. Hey, happy Valentine's Day. Yeah. And and, uh, are you feeling the love of tax season already? Well, we we are getting started in another week or so. We'll be working uh, most of the days. Right, right. So we will see whether April 15th is the due date this year. Yeah, yeah, isn't that the truth? Uh, It's always changing. Something's always changing in tax season, right? Uh, Totally. Yeah, yeah, which is why you need Frazier and Dieter, but we'll get to that later. Um, But you brought along a great guest today. Uh, John Coleman is with us. Uh, uh, John's an author, and he's also with Sovereign's Capital. John, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much, John. Thank you, Roger, for having me on today. It's such a pleasure to be here. Our pleasure. Yeah, it's it's our great pleasure. So talk a little bit about you and what you're, how you're serving folks in uh, Sovereign's Capital. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an author with Harvard Business Review, which we'll talk about a little bit today and have a new book, The HBR Guide to Crafting Your Purpose. I write a lot about culture and leadership and purpose. And then by day, I work at a faith and values aligned investment firm called Sovereign's Capital that does venture, private equity, and public equities, uh, while also wrangling four kids with my wife, Jackie, here in the Atlanta area. You yeah. look pretty fresh for all that. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of coffee, John. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, John, I think you'll find that John Coleman is a renaissance man. Uh, he has done a number of things, and uh, yeah, we're welcome, John. We're glad yeah. to have you. Thank you. That's awesome. So uh, dive in a little more to, to Sovereign's Capital before we get to your book, and uh, uh, talk about those that faith and investing and values and how that, how, how that intersects for your firm. Yeah, absolutely. So our goal is to invest in leaders who are trying to lead uh, redemptive companies that lead to human flourishing and love of neighbors, the way that we think about that. So we invest in lower middle market businesses, uh, local firms often owner-operated. We have an early stage venture investing arm that tries to back entrepreneurs who are trying to build redemptive companies. And we are introducing a public equities capability actually in a couple of weeks that will invest in public companies where there's evidence that the leadership is really values aligned and that the companies have cultures that are reflective of those values and encourage human flourishing. And so it's a great, a great place to work and it's an exciting time to be in the markets right now. And you guys are growing. We are growing. Yeah, we, we more than doubled last year. There's a lot of interest now, I think, in this idea of faith-aligned investing uh, as people have become more interested in values and ESG investing generally. And we offer a different take on that uh, for, for clients who are really interested in trying to integrate their personal values and faith with the way that they deploy their capital. Now, for those that don't know, what is a redemptive company? Yeah, Well, we think it looks very different depending on the type of company it is, depending on the leadership. What we tend to do is invest in faith-driven leaders. So we'll find someone who's motivated by their faith building a company. And then when we look at those companies, they tend to reflect a few types of things. One, they love and value people. And so they really put an emphasis on people, whether that's through family-friendly policies like maternity and paternity leave, for example, or just simply in the way that they treat employees and customers and others. We think that it involves um, products that that are in some way uh, positive or redemptive. So there are certain products that we probably wouldn't invest in, but that can manifest in a lot of ways. We invest in a, a fire truck company right now and a restoration and mitigation business and a lineman training center, a trade school effectively. 
So there are a lot of ways you can see that manifest that really generate dignity for the people working there, perform uh, important services for their communities, or in the case of our venture investing, uh, really have big ideas uh, for the future of the economy of the world that we think can be conducted in a really positive way for culture. Wow. What, what a great work. So, John, you have written a book. It's the HBR Guide to Crafting Your Purpose. And uh, we were just chatting before we came on the air. It's amazing. With all you're doing, you're able to get a book out. Uh, but it just, just got released. Talk In broad strokes, let's talk about the book and why you wrote it. Well, and don't be too impressed by my productivity, John. I'm averaging about one book every 10 years right now, which is not, not terribly <laughs> that's productive. A, that's a faster pace than me, <laughs> but, but still, anyway. But still, this is his third book. Yes, so exactly. So that, that makes him three ahead of me, John. And me, yeah. Yeah, so uh, you know, I've become just fascinated with this idea of purpose. And as, as with most writers, it started from my own personal curiosity. And I'm really motivated by this topic of purpose and meaning. I've wanted to live a meaningful life. And I got bothered by the idea that I didn't feel I had a very strong understanding of purpose. Uh, Ten years ago, I wrote another book for HBR called Passion and Purpose. And it was really more about next generation leadership, but talking to those leaders we consistently heard this theme of wanting greater meaning and purpose in their lives. Um, when I did my first book event, I remember I got the most obvious question possible in that first event. A young woman stood up and asked, John, that's great. Your book has purpose in the title. How do I find my purpose? Mm. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but I do remember it was a terrible answer. I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing. And so I spent the next four or five years really obsessing over this idea of how to answer that question better And over time, I came to believe that the question itself actually contained a really flawed understanding of purpose and that there were three myths embedded in that and became uh, interested in trying to articulate a different vision for purpose, which is uh, what's resulted in the book. So we were chatting a little bit before uh, we came on the air about uh, what seems like an obvious question, but obvious questions sometimes have unusual answers, which are worth exploring you know, what is purpose? What is it? What is purpose in terms of the way you describe it? Yeah, absolutely. I think purpose is that thing which gives life um, meaning and importance, uh, impact, depth, or direction. You kind of know it when you see it, but we all know a, a purely fun life isn't a fulfilling life, right? It's the complement to that where things can be enjoyable, but you also know that they have some sort of meaning impact and depth. And that's what creates a a fully flourishing life in my mind. Yeah. And one of the things I got out of reading your book, John, was the fact that purpose is not singular. That's Uh, right. It it can be more than just one purpose and that my purpose in life can change uh, as I proceed in in life and uh, reach different stages. And so I thought that both of those were, were, were very good points. Yeah. Roger, that's spot on. I think As I reflected on that question, how do I find my purpose, I thought that it did contain three fundamental misconceptions. One was that purpose is a single thing, right? There are a lot of people who get a lot of anxiety thinking about this one thing to give their entire lives meaning. Uh, That young lady was asking me, how do I find this big thing, almost like a hero's journey in a Hollywood movie that's going to totally reroute my life? And I think that uh, purpose isn't a single thing, it's plural. Like if I could go back and talk to that young lady, I'd say, you already have a lot of purpose in your life, right? It's all around you. It's just learning to see it and to embrace those different sources. I think that it's not something you find is the second myth. I think instead it's something that you build or craft as the title of the book indicates. So 
uh, something that each of us can see in the world around us and seek to craft greater into our lives, into our work. And then the final thing from my point of view is that uh, purpose isn't a, a single thing that's stable over time. Instead, it changes over time, as you mentioned. And uh, I think that's incredibly important because we all go through different phases of life. And at each of those phases, we may actually have shifting sources of purpose, whether you're becoming a parent or a grandparent, where you're entering the workforce or going to college. There are these natural inflection points where we just find those sources of purpose shift or change. And we should learn to embrace that rather than to have that cause anxiety for us. You said something there that I think is crucial because so many folks out there view purpose as some sort of journey, some sort of quest. That's not what you're saying. You know, I do think there's a journey element involved in it, but I don't think it's quite the hero's journey that we see in Hollywood, right? You you look at Neo in the Matrix or uh, Ray Skywalker on Tatooine and you think, oh man, my life's meaningless, but if I just wait for the right moment, something will come into my life to change that. And instead, I would say that it's a journey, but it's a journey with agency. We don't need to wait for anything to happen to us. Purpose is all around every day. And it's more a process of self-reflection and then intentional work outwards such that we can craft our own journey to find purpose in multiple ways uh, throughout rather than just waiting for it to happen to us. Because yeah, a lot of people don't spend time self-reflection. That's right. uh, and, 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 and so they don't do that. And so they um, can be unfairly critical of themselves or, or sometimes thinking they're doing a great job when, when, when actually they're not. And so uh, I I do think self-reflection is very, very important. I think that's exactly right, Roger. And I think that it's self-reflection in manageable and incremental ways, including big ways. So, you know, one of the greatest pieces of advice you get as a writer is, you know, don't try and be William Faulkner, right? Like if you shoot too high, you're just going to stress yourself out. Or if you're a musician, don't try and be the Beatles. Don't write an album to rival the Beatles. Get something on paper. That's right. right. That's exactly (laughs) right. And I think this is like that. I mean, don't worry about trying to find this monumental life-changing thing uh, when you're thinking about self-reflecting on what gives you purpose. Just think about what gives you purpose every day, and ultimately that will help build to something larger, and you will find great sources of purpose. But targeting that, targeting something life-changing, is more likely to lead you to stop self-reflecting or to create anxiety rather than to be something really productive. What are some of the other, and I say other because I think you just answered part of this question, you know, the myths that folks have about purpose. I think you just described maybe one that they think it's some big, uh, uh, huge, hairy, audacious goal that they've got to hit, uh, when it's actually incremental. Yep. Talk about myths, other myths about purpose that you see out there. Yeah. I think one of the big ones, which I mentioned is this idea that purpose is something you find rather than something you build. Yeah. And if you think about it, that's a very passive way of thinking about something, which is not so fulfilling. I think in almost any job, and we talk about this extensively in the book, any job has sources of purpose. There are multiple sources of purpose you can have in a job. Any life has those. You just have to be willing to look around and to craft greater purpose into what what you're doing. So at a job that can look like thinking through who you're actually serving in that job and emphasizing who you're serving. It can look like building really positive relationships with your colleagues. It can look like tweaking the activities of your job. It's called job crafting in the management literature so that that job is more fulfilling to you. And so it's it's interesting to me that as you self-reflect, um, rather than being uh, waiting for something to happen in a job or seeking to change your job, for example, because it's not giving you purpose, 
the first step is always to look around you and see if you've been as comprehensive in your assessment of what could give you purpose as possible and whether you've taken ownership of that and tried to build it. Um, and I think that's a common misconception that people face. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, John Coleman is with us, folks. He is the author of the HBR Guide to Crafting Your Purpose. Um, so everyone has different sources of purpose, and how do you think about those different sources of purpose in your yeah. life? You know, I am, uh, because I'm not smart enough to remember really complicated things, I like frameworks. And so in the uh, in the book, I spell out the idea that I think there are at least six sources of purpose that are around people every day. And I, I created a little acronym to remember those labors, L-A-B-O-R-S. And I think for anyone who's struggling to figure out what's giving their life meaning, you can look at these six categories and you'll probably have something in those categories right now. And if you don't have something that gives you something to go out and, and try and find and craft a little bit. Um, the L in labors, I think of as love, that's meaningful relationships. So if you look at any of the social science studies out there, the number one determinant of whether you have a fulfilling life is the depth and breadth of your positive relationships. So I always encourage people that the search for purpose really starts with your relationships. The A is for avocations and self-improvement. And so that's apart from your professional world, are there hobbies, are there avocations um, that you really take up that give you meaning, whether that's running 5Ks or whether it's knitting or doing Wordle uh, is my new thing <laughs> that I wake up every morning and stress out over. Playing basketball. <laughs> <laughs> Playing basketball, that's right. The, um, you know, those sorts of things actually do give you a sense of meaning and a sense of craft. Uh, the B in labors is for beauty, and so finding sources of beauty. What I find often, especially with busy professionals, is they're not really taking time to appreciate beauty in their lives, whether that's getting outdoors on a hike, whether that's um, you know paying attention to artwork, going to museums, even taking a walk around the park can sometimes re-expose you to that. Uh, the fourth letter O is for occupation, which we can talk about much more. And obviously your work is where you spend 40% of your time. That's got to have some purpose and meaning as a part of it. The R for me is for uh, religion and philosophy. And so a very common theme throughout is uh, throughout the literature that you study is that people of religious faith or with a defined philosophic tradition, so a sense of what their first principles are, often feel a greater sense of purpose in the work that they do. They're better oriented towards life. And so I always encourage people to explore that. And then the S for me is for service, uh, so service to others. And again, just like the depth of your positive relationships, anytime you look at social science research, one of the most important things to a person's well-being is service to others. And so if you just think about those six categories, I think most people have an element of each of those in their lives, and most people could probably get more out of each of those categories in their life that would surround them with almost this web or mesh of, of meaning and purpose. It's good to have a uh, lattice work on which to work on this, right? I mean, yes. as opposed to some amorphous, uh, uh, I'm coming back to that word quest for purpose, to have some sort of roadmap to get you there. Yeah, that's right. I always find it easier to start with something small and definable, mm -hmm. and those things will then add up to something greater than the sum of their parts, if that makes sense. And um, and again, keeping in mind that framework, could there be sources of purpose outside of that? Sure. Are some of those categories less relevant to people? Sure. But if you just write those down on a sheet of paper and start with those, at the end of the day, you'll have 20 or 25 things that really make your life meaningful. If you're feeling like it's absent meaning, you'll suddenly see, wow, 
there's actually a lot there and you'll see a bunch of areas in which you could invest uh, that could make it even even deeper. Right. And that's the self-reflection process. Right. And so it, it's there. That's exactly right. And, and a framework just helps you get started, right? It's just something to help you take that first step so you can begin to articulate all those areas. Yeah. We work with so many so many talented and successful business people. And so we're, we're blessed with that. But let me tell you, it is really, really hard for people to be, quote, successful in both their professional life, their personal life, and then what I call in their community. And, uh, you know, those are the three areas where, where we see clients, you know, often they can do two, one of those very, very well. But, but to get all three, it's a pretty tough task. And, um, you know, some of, some of my clients, as they're getting a little older, are, are trying to focus on that. You know, where can I do a better job? Yeah, that's right. And that's where it is a journey, I think, to your, your prior comments. I think we're never finished, right? Something always falls a little bit out of balance over time. Uh, we neglect some area. And so from my point of view, this isn't one moment of self-reflection, but kind of a consistent um, philosophy of self-reflection such that, Roger, when you're out of balance uh, or when it's time to focus more on community than professional pursuits, for example, that you're really navigating those transitions well and that you're constantly reflecting on whether you feel that you're you're as balanced amongst those areas, their work, their prof- professional life, their community as they could be. Okay, Roger. Now we've got to do it. Now we got to shout out Barry College. So <laughs> both of you are uh, uh, graduates and big supporters and lovers of Barry College. So when Barry College plays into your book, why, well, yeah, why don't you talk up a little bit about that? Well, uh, yeah, this was this was shameless promotion of an institution that Roger and I both both love. But you know, in writing a book about purpose, I just found that Barry was a remarkable place to mention. You know, if you look at the history of the school, the founder Martha Barry was one of the most kind of purpose driven people of her time. Uh, she was a single woman at that time. Uh, she was one of the most pro- uh, prominent philanthropists in the United States, despite being a woman at that time, which was unusual, right? I mean, there was this was still under um, an era where women could vote when she first started this, mm-hmm. et cetera. And so she was this remarkable uh, person who really just wanted to help poor mountain kids in Northwest Georgia and the surrounding areas. And she built this institution founded on the idea that every person who came through it should lead with the head, the heart, and the hands, right? A balanced that, approach that to That is life. our motto. That's the motto. That's right. And um, and I think that's such a great framework for living a flourishing life, right? That you want intellectual development, uh, you want heart, you want service, you want to care for others, you want to invest with others, and you want hands, you want meaningful work, you want to develop a craft. And so in the book, I profile Barry a little bit and then profile a guy named Rufus Massey, who Roger and I both know, a wonderful guy who worked at the school for a long time, helped to create their work uh, parts of their work program there. And I, I um, worked under Rufus. Rufus was my really? boss when I was part of the work program. How was he as a boss, Roger? Uh, well, back then he had the long <laughs> hair, and well, we all had the long hair. <laughs> but uh, no, great guy. I still love Rufus to this day. And uh, but but Barry's very unique in that where where I think we have ninety two percent of all of our students uh, actually work engaged in uh, work on campus. And, uh, and so, you know, a lot of the Barry students that graduate are, are not afraid of work. And, and uh, you know, we, 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 we get these young kids and we say, hey, showing up is what, 85% of the game, right? 
And so Barry does a, a good job with that. Well, Roger, it gets back to the framework you had about the personal community and professional pursuits. I think it's one of the few schools where you intentionally learn each of those as an undergraduate, right? You learn to balance work and getting meaningful work along with developing really great relationships in the community, along with your intellectual development and along with a real commitment to service. I mean, no student on Barry's campus goes without doing service. I think we still mandate it. There. Yeah, I think uh, we do. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's, that's such great training, right? For a balanced life after, because you learn at a very young age to begin thinking about all of those elements of, of a comprehensive or a whole life. I think you, you two guys just gave a great commercial for anyone considering going to Barry College, uh, certainly for the parents that might be involved, right? <laughs> I think that's great. Uh, it's a great school. Um, so uh, back to purpose here for a little bit, um, John, as we kind of uh, amble toward our close, let's talk about changing purpose. Yeah. Because life changes, circumstances change, purpose changes. Talk about how we should navigate the changing purpose. Totally. And I think this is an incredibly relevant topic now. I'm actually working on an article for HBR that'll come out in a few weeks on uh, the idea that the pandemic changed your purpose, right? Like the last two years have put almost everyone in a transition. It's a really unique period of time. Um, you know, typically in a person's life, there are these big defined times when you enter a transition, you graduate high school, you go to college, you start your first job, you get married, you have kids. You know, there are these life events that cause you to reflect and to think how your life is changing and how your priorities are changing. Because uh, your priorities as a new dad are different than your priorities as a college student, right? And we live in this unique period now where there's been such a disruption professionally. You know, people are calling it the great resignation or other things that I think almost everyone is rethinking some of their fundamental values, how they want to create balance in their life. And my, my approach to this is to not be afraid of transition, but instead embrace it and to reflect properly through it so that you can navigate that transition and come out on the other side with a greater sense of purpose. And I think that's true. I think everybody, regardless of position, has rethought things during this pandemic and, and what's important. And uh, maybe some of the things that aren't as important. That's right. I mean, I had two years of activities just completely canceled. And, That's right. Um, was able to survive. So <laughs> totally. Well, and you, yeah. you know, you think yeah. about it, it gives you a sense of your own mortality, right? I think all of us started thinking about how do we want to. I had a great business school professor named Clay Christensen who delivered a speech that became a book called "How Will You Measure Your Life?" Mm. And I think when you're living in this this time where everyone was afraid for a period of time. Um, you think, how will I measure my life? Like what really matters to your point, Roger? Um, you get stripped of all the unessential stuff. So it was amazing how crowded my wife and I's lives were with stuff we actually didn't care that much about doing. And when it all got canceled, it was easy to then just not start doing that stuff again. Right. And so we, we really recrafted the way in which we live our lives socially. And then professionally, I think, you know, people have experienced more flexible schedules, more remote work the ability to see family more, a change in travel schedules, for example, um, or maybe even a realization that their professional pursuits are, that their desired professional pursuits are different than the ones they're in. And so I think um, it's just such a unique time for people to reevaluate uh, how they're going to live moving forward. Yeah. And then on the flip side, you realized the things that you really missed and really mm -hmm. enjoyed and couldn't wait to get back to. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I went, I took my son to an NBA basketball game the other day and you forget, it's not the same watching it on TV <laughs> as going to a game, like getting, seeing him get excited about Trey Young, his, yeah. his Jersey number was 11, like Trey Young's and Trey dropped 43 points that night. The oh, place wow. was going crazy. And of course he's been talking about it nonstop for like three weeks and you don't realize how much you miss that, you know, getting out in the world and just experiencing it with other people. And, and there are a lot of areas like that where, man, this has just given such a sense of perspective on uh, how fortunate we are to have those things. And your son now tells you, call me Ice Trey, right? That's, That's right. <laughs> it's his favorite player now. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, but it's good to have heroes. That's it a, it's good to have heroes. Right. I love it. Um, let's talk about uh, employees first and then companies. So, because employees, that's a good way to talk about the pandemic. There's the great resignation that folks are trying to figure out purpose at work, and maybe they're coming up short on that in some cases. And that explains why we're having so much turnover. Possibly, there are a lot of explanations. It's a complex subject. Uh, But talk a little bit about, give advice, I mean, maybe to those folks out there that aren't feeling purpose in their work and what they should do about that. My first piece of advice to people is not to um, switch jobs or careers without a lot of reflection. I think often people try and change their, when they're feeling a lack of meaning, they try and change their external environment when the problem is actually an internal environment problem. And, you know, changing a job or career is a big decision. It's disruptive. It can take time, you know, and the, the worst thing in the world is to end up in that new job or that new career and find out all the internal stuff that was a challenge is still there, right? The grass looked greener, but it wasn't. And so my encouragement to people is before you make a big decision like that, take real time of self-reflection and processing to figure out whether you can make the job you have the job you want, right? Mm-hmm. There are probably ways in which you could craft your job, work with the leadership of your company to adapt it a little bit, work with your colleagues uh, just to change the way in which you approach work such that it's more meaningful, that you're doing activities you care about more, that you're getting a greater sense of service, that you've got better relationships at work. Um, there are a ton of things you can do to try and reinvent that job uh, and think about it differently. Um, and I think that's always wiser than making a big change, right? Because you're doing the internal processing before you change your external environment. And then I do think at the end of that, some people will just decide, um, you know what, it's time for something new. Maybe not a criticism of the old place, but it's time to embark on a new adventure, a new part of the journey. Um, they may decide that they've stagnated. They may decide that they're in a transitional period of life where they want to work differently, uh, that they've exhausted you know, their interest in this particular profession. Um, I went through this myself while writing the book. I kind of, it's not, perhaps not surprising that I would change jobs while writing this book and reflecting <laughs> all the time. But, you know, and it was no criticism of my prior firm at all, but I uh, chose a radically different path where I'm now at a smaller firm, uh, not quite a startup that rapidly growing. My prior firm was about 9,000 people. Mm. When I joined my new firm, it was 12 people. Wow. And, um, and much more explicitly values aligned for me, again, not a criticism of the the other place, but just more a specific thing to the new job. And um, that was appropriate for me. It was a great time to transition. It was um, a good point in my life. I had done some of the reflecting through writing. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that'll be the right decision for some people. But I, I, I push people, you know, don't make hasty decisions. Be really thoughtful about this and try and reinvent your work before you change your external environment. Yeah, and I think employers are listening. Uh, industries are changing. Uh, they've had to with the pandemic. 
I think of the hospitality and the restaurant industry in particular, uh, all the changes that they've gone through. And, uh, you know, they are still having critical staffing issues. And uh, so that's important to them. But, uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, don't do anything too hastily and, uh, you know, have some self-reflection on that. Well, and that is an encouragement, I think, to companies right now to take very seriously the idea that your employees are going through this process. And I think, Roger, to your point, listening to them, you know, making a conscious effort to hear what they're saying and to adapt your business in so much as it's possible. Now, sometimes I think this goes overboard. I'm very skeptical, for example, of a fully remote uh, workplace and remote all the time. And But there are elements of the last couple of years that we could begin to incorporate. Like my travel schedule has declined by about 50%. And most meetings I can do over Zoom now rather than taking a flight and being away from my family. I think that's a really positive change, actually, right? And so I think employers or companies that embrace that and engage employees on reshaping you know, what the company can look like coming out of this will likely end up ahead of those that, that simply try and revert to what they previously had or let the model just stagnate into what it's become over the last couple of years. What do you say to those companies out there that, I mean, in some cases, maybe they're uh, in this, you know, there are people that are different stages. Companies are different stages. So this doesn't apply to everyone, but some companies, I think maybe look at what's happened and they're trying to put the, uh, everything back in the box. It was, you know, back in 2019. Right. Um, And, um, and then some may think, Hey, look, we're, we're a publicly traded company we've got to show results and all oh, this purpose thing is a little too much woo woo for us right <laughs> so i mean talk talk to those companies about why it's so important to dive into it and as roger says have have some introspection about that well i th- i think very simply purpose and meaning are an essential component of culture and there's a lot of great work out there showing that culture is one of the greatest, if not the greatest competitive advantages in business. It's very difficult. Um, It's a moat that you can build around it. Building a culture is hard. Uh, Building the right talent and people is difficult. And so uh, it's much greater protection than most of the kind of competitive moats you could build around a business. And it creates employees who are more motivated, who are more invested, who work harder. I mean, if you look at all of the surveys Um, nearly universally employees will trade off things like compensation, for example, for a greater sense of purpose in the work that they do. And there's evidence of that. If you look at some of the world's most successful companies now, they focus a great deal on culture inside the company, on empowerment of employees, right? Whether that's the big tech companies, which have obviously mainstreamed this idea down to the types of companies we invest in. You know, we uh, are investors in a great business called, um, Brindley Mountain Fire Apparatus, for example, which is the largest purchaser and reseller of fire trucks in the in the country. And you go to their campus in Huntsville and there are fire trucks everywhere. They've got a petting zoo. The leadership really cares about the employees. They have a volleyball game in the afternoons where you know all the diesel mechanics and everybody else are coming out to play volleyball. And there's just this sense that the work they do actually matters, that it's fun, that the people matter to one another. And that's the kind of competitive advantage. You can't compensate your way to that right? You have to care about people and build a culture that reflects that. And so I think for companies thinking about this, move beyond what I see people get stuck is they've read the book, Start With Why or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they think we have to have a purpose statement. So they hire a branding agency to come up with a purpose statement. And then they like roll that sentence out and they think, okay, we've got a purpose now. 
and really purpose that check. (laughs) That's right. You sign the invoice and it's done. And really, this is about engaging your employees, about engaging your colleagues and why their work matters and why your collective work together matters. And I think doing that conscientiously just creates so much buy-in with a workforce and so much more passion for what they do. And that is necessarily going to lead to competitive advantage in my mind. Wow. Great words here from John Coleman, author of of the HBR Guide to Crafting Your Purpose. Uh, Roger, I wish we could keep this going. This has been fun. Well, I think he's got another book or two in him. (laughs) I don't want to wait 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) This is so good. I don't want to wait 10 years. John, John, you do great work. But but he's young enough that we can. (laughs) That's right. Well, maybe you can, maybe. maybe, But hopefully I'll be around too. But uh, no, this has been a lot of fun and uh, very informative, uh, which is the great combination. And uh, so, John, we really appreciate your great work and – you sharing that with the world and um, let's tell everybody uh, where they can go to find out more information about you and your book. Yeah. If you want to contact me, I've got a website, johnwilliamcoleman.com, johnwilliamcoleman.com. And uh, if you want to buy the book, it's at Amazon, HBR, anywhere you want to pick up a book, the HBR guide to crafting your purpose. And folks, we'll have a link in the show notes. John Coleman, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you both. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, John. Hey, folks, just a quick reminder that this show is brought to you by Frazier and Dieter. Frazier and Dieter invest in relationships to make a difference because they believe in taking the time to get to know their clients and each other through making the effort to support each other personally as they grow. Speaking of culture, Frazier and Dieter takes deliberate actions to create a sustainable culture focused on improvement and supporting their people and clients in their daily activities through being a deliberately developmental organization. And guess what? Speaking of Harvard Business Review, their efforts were featured in Harvard Business Review. So if that's the kind of firm you're interested in learning more about and uh, doing work with for your accounting and advisory needs, go to FraserDeter.com and find out more information. Roger, great work. Well, thank you, John. John Coleman, you're a great guest. Great job. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, doing this again next month. Let's do it. Folks, I'm John Ray alongside uh, Roger Lesby. Thanks again for joining us on Frazier and Dieter's Business Beat.